Anyhow, we're going to be on 1 Corinthians. One thing that does not change is the preaching of God's word here. 1 Corinthians 1.17 is where we're going to be at. And we're going to go from uh, to all the way to chapter 2, verse 2. Two verses in chapter 2. A little bit of context as you're turning your scriptures there. Corinth was a status-driven church. And because it was stat- status was very important to the, to the city of Corinth. And it was absolutely, this whole culture was infecting the life of the Corinthian church. And last week, we realized that there was division because people were looking to find status association with leaders. All right, so uh, the leaders would be people like Paul and Apollos and Peter. And so people were wrapping themselves around them to make associations with them. And so this is where the, the Corinthian Christians were trying to separate from one another, which is the opposite of what the Lord has called us to do. Today, today, we're going to see how other things gave the Corinthian status. Associations with schools of thought. Greek philosophy dominated the Roman Empire. And it still dominates uh, today, too, in, in modern-day uh, Western world. And there was division amongst the church. So today, this is what we're talking about, how the wisdom of man started to separate the Corinthians. So let's rise, if you're able to, wherever you're at. We're going to be at 1 Corinthians 1, 17, all the way to chapter 2, verse 2. The Bible says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Verse 18, for the word of the cross is foolishness or moronic to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is wit written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Verse 20, And the base things of the world and the despised God, and the despised God has chosen the things that are not. Why? So that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in our Lord. Two more verses out of chapter 2. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ 
and him crucified. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Help us to understand your word so that we will love your son more. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. Acts 17 is the chapter in Acts depicting Paul going to the city of Athens. Chapter 18 is where he would go next, which is Corinth, and where he, Paul will spend 18 months. So backing up to chapter 17, Paul spent some time with the Athenians. And Athens was the intellectual capital of the world at the time. I mean, the universities, the scholars, the philosophers, man's wisdom was showcased and highlighted in Athens. And it was interesting the Athenians, they prided themselves on being able to interpret the world's events, understanding things, how to live as well as possible. These are the things that were elevated in Athens. And Corinth is only 65 miles away from Athens. And so that therefore the Corinthians were the little brothers to Athens in some way. So they were sophisticated as well. They, sought, they thought to themselves, we know, we're learned. We know what's going on. We're connected to the best schools of thought and the best schools of academic, academics and higher learning. They understood the wisdom of the world. So this is where some of the Corinthians were starting to think that they're sophisticated. The newest ideas and the trends and the fads were very important to them, keeping up to the newest ideas. Now, C.S. Lewis Christian author who's now with the Lord coined this term called chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery. He, Lewis described himself before he became a Christian when he was still an atheist, he didn't believe in God at one time, as a chronological snob. So C.S. Lewis would define what a chronological snob as the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate common to our own age, meaning you just accept whatever is the prevailing thought of our day, all right? And he goes on to say, our lazy assumption that modern equals better, meaning today's ideas are way better than yesterday's thought. So whatever's trendy, whatever is new, is seen as truth and far superior to what was taught from yesteryears. Today is 2022. And we do live in the information age. I mean, we have the internet. We're just a click away from understanding a whole lot of things. If we, we just got to ask Siri, we get a lot of answers back, right? That is also a risk for us as we're in Los Angeles, living in the information age. Could we be guilty of chronological snobbery as, as well? Could we think that we know better, that we're so advanced, that we're so learned, that this time and age, day and age, that we know better than how it was done before in the past? So this is what Paul is addressing here in Corinth. I think, and as I thought about Corinth, I thought a lot about Southern California. Couldn't help it. And the first point that we're going to talk about that Paul heads up right away is the power. Point number one, the power is the word of the cross. The power is the word of the cross. Verse 17, Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not in cleverness of speech, not in fancy talk or rhetoric, not in the wisdom of the world, so that the cross of Christ will not be made void, made empty. Paul was basically saying, we have this powerful message called the gospel, and then whenever we speak with eloquence or the wisdom of the world, we have the risk of emptying it of its power. 
right? So we could talk about Christ. We could talk about things that are Christian but has absolute no power. It just simply becomes another message that everyone else is talking according to the world. Verse 18, for the word of the cross is foolishness. Moriah's word, this is where we get the word moron, moronic. The, the word of the cross is moronic to those who are perishing. Who's that? Non-Christians. They hear the gospel preach and they're like, nah, that makes no sense. That's stupid. I'm not going to tr trust my life to that type of message. However, but to those who are being saved, that's Christians. You and me, brothers and sisters, it is the power of God. The power of God. It doesn't say it is the power from God, but the power of God. Brothers and sisters, we've been given the most potent message. Wendy Lou went to see Uncle George with the most powerful message that she could ever offer up. No words of comfort would have mattered at that time. No advice on having a positive attitude and mindset through what Uncle George was going through would have mattered. Only thing that would have mattered is that she gave the message of the gospel in its full potency, full power, full power. So the first point is the power is the word of the cross, the word of the cross. Now, this is an important thing that as we talk about the word of the cross, how does the word of the cross, the gospel, get emptied of its power? How does it become powerless? This is what we need to understand, church family. Because we, we do call ourselves people of the gospel. How do we actually empty the gospel of its power? We want to avoid this at all costs. So point number two, Paul identifies the problem. The problem is the wisdom of man. The wisdom of man is the problem. Verse 19 says, As for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. This is a quote out of Isaiah 29, 14. And basically, Paul is drawing on this, this quote from Isaiah 29, 19, 29, 14 because the context of this quote is a warning not to match wits with God. As if man has the answers, as if man has it all figured out, as if man could speak back to God. But doesn't this make more sense, God? It's a warning. Verse 20, Paul, in rapid fire fashion, says, Where are the experts? Where are the experts? Where is the wise man? Where are the greatest philosophers? Where are the scribes? Where are the best scholars and the PhDs of our time? Where are the debaters of this, of this day and age? Who could match wits with God and the situation going on today? I mean, how appropriate is this church family? Today, 2020, I mean, we have the coronavirus going on. We have racial tension. And we have massive uh, economic debt as a nation. Who is going to step up and answer these issues? I think God is making a point to us in our modern-day life. Nobody, nobody has the answers. If you think that this election coming up in November is going to solve our problems, think again. These issues have been there for, for, from the beginning. It's called a sin issue. Whether it's overspending, whether it's racism, it's called sin. Coronavirus, there will be other diseases. It's called living in a sinful, fallen world. The point 
God is making is nobody can match wits with God. Verse 21 is a key verse. I want us to really spend some time here focusing here. Bible says in verse 20, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. Let me read that again. The world through its wisdom did not come to know God. The world's wisdom cannot and will not ever lead anyone to know God. Impossible. Impossible. Man wants to come up with a complex system of thought to come up with an idea how to do life, how to know God, how to transcend this world. Impossible. Look what happened way back in Genesis with the, with the Tower of ba- ba- Babel. They got people together, the wisest and brightest, and started building a, a huge tower and said, you know what, we're going to make it up to God and to the heavens. This is how we're going to get to know God. No way. So today, we have our system of thought, just like the Tower of Babel, where we're adding in man's wisdom, trying to figure out life, trying to explain, interpret life with man's wisdom. doesn't work. We cannot understand God. We cannot know God. We cannot receive salvation through man's wisdom. We cannot even explain what God's doing through man's wisdom. Impossible. Now let's go back to verse 21. God was well pleased... This is his plan. God was well pleased through the foolishness or the stupidity of the message preached, the gospel message, to save those who believe. The gospel message is how you know God. This is God was pleased to enact this plan. This is how people come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior and receive salvation and forgiveness of their sins. So like I mentioned, perhaps the Corinthian church were acting sophisticated. You know, they didn't live in the, the countryside. They were in the metropolis. Not only that, they were just 65 miles from the intellectual capital of the, of the known universe at the time. And God, through Paul, is basically talking about the foolishness of the message. Let's not get too sophisticated here. This is the message that God has chosen. Verse 22, For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks seek for wisdom. The Jews look for sign miracles. The Greeks, like we talked about, wanted a complicated system of philosophy and human knowledge to accept something like this. But it says this in verse 23, But we preach Christ crucified. I love how that sounds. But we preach Christ crucified. And to the Jews, a stumbling block. And to Gentiles or or non-Jews, foolishness. See, the Jews now, just try to wrap your mind around the Jewish mind. Why did they see the cornerstone, Christ himself, as a stumbling block? Let's really take our time to understand some of this. Remember, the Jews had messianic expectations. Their savior, their king. What was their expectation in the Gospels? To be a conquering king. Another King David who will come in and wipe out the Romans and establish Israel and have them be relevant again and, and give significance to the nation of Israel. This is what they're looking for. This is what they're looking for. Instead, what happened? They got a blue-collar carpenter's son as the Messiah. Not only that, he's from Nazareth. Just an outpost city called, from Nazareth, not from Jerusalem, from Nazareth. 
Not only that, the religious Jews, the rulers, condemned Jesus to die. Not only that, he was humiliated, he was mocked, and he was crucified like a common criminal outside of Jerusalem. And humiliated. And the cross is the most scandalous type of death you could have. So keep that in mind. Why was this a stumbling block for the Jews? Because it did not make sense. It did not fit for what they expected. The Messiah would be another David coming in as a conquering hero, killing the Goliaths and setting up their kingdom. That didn't happen that way. And for the Greeks or the Gentiles, this is this, the message of the cross was foolishness. It was moronic. It was stupid. It, it did not make sense. Why is that? Well, Greeks, Greek wisdom, they love complicated systems of thought. This is what man craves on, to figuring things out so they could take ownership and, and, and have pride in what they're doing. This is just depra human depravity. But the prevailing thought that the Greeks had is that they want to have mastery of life. You know, in other words, they wanted to live a life and think in a way that would breed success. Breed success in their politics, breed success in their, in their courtrooms, in their businesses, breed success in their relationships, in how they thought. So they, basically the Greeks were about to do all that they can to be all that they could be. They wanted to maximize their life. And I think many of us, if you're honest, this is a very much a prevailing thought. Take care of yourself, self-actualize, see how far you could take it. Correct? This is, a, this is a prevailing thought of our culture as well. And the more the Greeks were able to be all this, they grew in their status. All right? This is a way to achieve greater status. And when, they, when their peer groups are able to see, man, hey, that man or woman... Man, he or she, they got it together. That gave them status. It's being recognized. Their image before man was very important. But when the Greeks heard, or the Corinthians heard, the word of the cross, the word of the cross says, our leader died on the cross. The word of the cross says, I need to die to myself and follow a dead Jewish carpenter's son. The word of the cross is that I have to die to myself and live for Christ. So with that in mind, it does not compute. You knowing how the Greek mind worked or the Corinthian mind worked, it, that did not compute. It was foolishness. Foolishness. It was moronic. It didn't make sense. So for us today, the temptation could be such that, you know what, do I need to develop a message to make it more winsome or more, more uh, to, to, to fit to the appetite of our day, you know, to fit to the worldly appetite so it's more digestible. Here's some examples of what I'm talking about. I remember going to Japan on mission trips a couple years ago and was able to speak to the football community, talk to them about Christ, speak to other, at a couple outreach events at some churches. And so I'm preaching and preaching on, on, on sin and judgment and hell and even when I was there, even when I got back, people asked me, did you really have to talk about judgment in hell? And I thought to myself, man, I'm new at this. You know, I've been a layman all my life up until that point. This is a couple months into full-time vocational ministry. 
I'm thinking, am I missing something here? Do I need to kind of present the gospel in a more winsome or kind of more uh, acceptable way? But even when I was there, something sparked in me like, absolutely, we got to talk about this. What are you actually being saved from? The people need to know this. Absolutely. So the wisdom of the world that influences that gospel presentation of not being, uh, is to not be too offensive. That's wisdom of the world. That's wisdom of the world. I don't know if that's Asian. I don't know if that's just everyone in general where we want to soften the message so that we have kind of a more of a more acceptable message for people. Remember this. The gospel message is going to be offensive to every non-believer. It's meant to be that way. It's supposed to confront and say, whoa, do I want to live for my kingdom or be part of the winning kingdom on Jesus' kingdom? It's supposed to be wisdom of the world right there that would neuter the power of the gospel is, is to eliminate judgment, eliminate those things. That, that's not the gospel. Without bad news, there is no good news. We need to talk about the bad news. Here's another example. You need to value yourself more. So the wisdom of man to say, you know what, we need to elevate that person's self-esteem and they'll be good. So the gospel presentation may come this way, or the false gospel presentation may come this way. Hey, follow Christ. Trust in him. He'll make, he'll raise your self-esteem. He'll make you more self-confident. He'll help you be all that you could be. Well, what non-believer doesn't want that? What non-believer doesn't want to improve his golf game and be a better parent and be, and to be a better uh, salesman? What non-believer doesn't want that? Anthony uh, Thesselton a theologian writes, but to treat the gospel of the cross of Christ as a vehicle for promoting self-esteem, self-fulfillment, and self-assertion turns it upside down and empties it of all that it offers and demands. See, the gospel message is not a way to elevate your own self-image. The gospel message isn't to live your best life now. The gospel message is eternal. It's cosmic. It's bigger than that. So the point is this, is if you offer a different deal that God actually offers, that, that deal is null and void. It doesn't matter. Why do we want to present a message that will not matter? How do we lose power? How do we cause the gospel to lose its power? is when the wisdom of man is mixed in and merged in and you create an amalgam, a mixture of God's wisdom along with our wisdom, then it becomes null and void. We don't want to do that. It's, we, we take a big hole and drill a big hole in the bucket of the gospel and it's drained of its power. We don't want to, that, the problem is the wisdom of man. The wisdom of man. Verse 24, going back to Corinthians, says, But to those who are, are the called, both Jews and Greek, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God, the Bible says. But God has a plan. There was a big problem in Corinth. But God had a plan. The plan is the wisdom of God. That's point number three. The plan is the wisdom of God. And Christ is that wisdom. Christ is the power of God. Christ is the wisdom of God. This is how you make sure the power of the gospels. Are. It's about Christ. Verse 25, it says this, Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
In other words, God is wiser and stronger than man. The smartest man, the wisest person, the strongest man or woman, God is greater. Amen? And this is where, remember what I talked to you about, some of the Corinthians were kind of getting puffed up, right? And they're kind of like thinking, hmm, let me figure this out. Let me be, be, be more winsome. Let me see if I can reach more people by kind of fitting in with what the world says. Well, this is where the Lord reminds them, remember you came, where you came from, Corinthians. Why are you so puffed up about this? Verse 26 says, not many of you are wise, not many of you are mighty, not many of you are noble. Meaning you guys are just common folks. You're a bunch of nobodies who are called into the kingdom of God. When do you start off thinking that you're all sophisticated and all that? You know, meaning not many of the Corinthians who became Christians were the gurus or the philosophers from Athens or even from Corinth. Not, even, not many of them were mighty, powerful army generals or people of power. They're just common people. Not many of them were noble. They're, none of them were royalty or had some kind of a noble status. These are just regular folks like you and me. So God's, in a way, saying, hey, what is the deal here? I haven't called you to be all sophisticated. Verse 27 Look at what he does. This is God's genius. God's genius. Verse 27 says this, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things, these are the ordinary things of the world. And the despised, these are the things that aren't esteemed that we don't regard as being important. God has chosen... The things that are not, the things that don't even count, God has chosen. Why? This is counterintuitive, right? You don't normally recruit foolish people on your team. Normally, when you want to be successful, you don't recruit weak people from your team, right? And oftentimes in our culture, we don't, we don't generally want to associate ourselves with like, uh, people who have no uh, dignity or, or who aren't dignified or who aren't of noble or uh, Merit. This is the opposite of how the world will operate. Completely opposite. Why did he do this? Let's turn our eyes to verse 28 at the end. So that he may nullify or make empty the things that are. To take away the power of how the world esteems these things. To eliminate these things. Have you ever thought to yourself, guys, Man, if only this politician would become a Christian. If only we could have a strong Christian president. If only this celebrity with their platform, if they would come to Christ. Man, imagine how God could use them to change the world. And I get it. There's definitely a, a, a platform. There's a, definitely a place like Esther for such a time as this is very integral. But... God doesn't need any celebrities. God doesn't need any politician or kings or queens to get his work done. He needs you and me. He needs common folks like you and me to advance so that, so that these things don't matter. So these things don't matter. God doesn't want us to draw upon these things as if this is a silver bullet to reach the world. The gospel message. Look at verse 29 as well. 
also so that no man may boast before God, so that nobody could take the credit. Oh, it's because of my intelligence, or it's because of that wealthy person. It's because of how powerful that person is. No, God just wipes that out and says, no, it's because me, so that no one may boast and God gets all the glory. Look at how that works. Look at verse 30 here. Verse 30 says, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. I mean, he did everything. Jesus, God has done everything for you and me. It's God's love. It's God's election of you and me. God has handpicked you and me to be part of his family. He's chosen us. His sovereignty is all over these verses here. God's genius is his plan to come up with a gospel message. God's provision, God sent Jesus Christ, his only son, to die for our sins. So basically, we're relying on the wisdom of God. He's neutralized it. And so Paul's doing a, a play here where how do we not lose the power of the gospel and how has God emptied the world of its wisdom, right? This is, this is what, how God has done in his genius. And because of Christ, who, who has become wisdom from God to us, God gives us righteousness. That means we're innocent and justified before him. That, and sanctification, that Jesus is our source of holiness. And redemption, Jesus is our source of freedom. We no longer have to be slaves to sin. Now we've been freed because of Christ. And once again, verse 31, So that just as it is written, Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, as Pastor Kenny talked about, sometimes we feel like we got it figured out. Let me hit that rake. Boom. It'll save time, energy. Good thing he's got good reflexes and is athletic enough to catch her or get out of the way. That's how man is. We're so convinced that we have the stats, we have the science, we have the background, we have the degrees. Say, you know what? This is what the truth is. No, 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 no. We're just stepping on that rake again if we go against what God has said to do. We need to stay true to what the Lord has said. I talked to you how Sister Wendy Liu was able to uh, talk to my dad about the gospel. This, I think this is about eight years ago, all right, roughly eight years ago. And Wendy, providentially, through her college days, went on a jet program to Japan. This is interesting. This is like, whoa. This is, oh, did you go to a jet program to Tokyo or Osaka? Somewhere big like that? No, no, no. I went to a place called Nachikatsura. Nachikatsura, where is that? Nobody knows that. That's, that's only some people like me know that because that's where my dad is from. She went to my, she spent about a year just being in that area where my dad is from. So when she came over, she brought this photo album and she's dressed in her kimono and with her friends and they kind of make this, more, and talked about this uh, annual uh, pilgrimage that they do in that area because what that area is known for is a huge waterfall, all right, the tallest waterfall in Japan, but also a shrine in a temple. You, you march up and hike up the mountain, dressed in your kimonos and things like that, and up there is a Shinto shrine, ancient Shinto shrine, and next to it is a Buddhist temple. Somehow they're able to coexist with one another, right? And so, so as she's talking about this, she gradually turns to my dad and talk, starts talking about the gospel to him. 
And so, of course, I've shared the gospel with him over the years. My brother has shared the gospel with him over the years. Other pastors have shared. But we had Wendy in there sharing the gospel with my dad. And as my dad came to Christ eventually, he would say stuff like, you know what? Before becoming a Christian, he goes like, you know what? I, I grew up there, but I don't even understand Buddhism. It's complicated. I don't even understand what Shintoism is all about. That was a stumbling block for my dad. And the message of the gospel, he goes, this is so simple. Is that all there is? I just got to trust Christ and, and him be my Lord? Is that it? See, this is called pride. Human pride wants to be able to figure out complex ideas. Human pride wants to be able to have to do things to earn things, earn salvation perhaps. But as soon as the Lord removed that from my dad, he said, you know what? I believe. I trust Jesus as my Lord, as my God. This is, it's that simple. The message of the gospel is simple. And I'm so grateful for Wendy to be able to, to take her time, to get over any fears, and, and to share the gospel with my dad. She had a hand in my dad coming to Christ as well. Evangelism. And all Wendy had to do with Uncle George or my dad or anybody else, and you as well, goes to point number four. The proclamation is Christ and him crucified. The proclamation is Christ and him crucified. Let me read you verse one of chapter two of 1 Corinthians. And when I came to you, brethren, talking to the Christians at Corinth, I did not come with superiority of speech, fancy talk, fancy rhetoric, just common, plain, straightforward. Or wisdom, meaning I didn't merge in Corinthian uh, uh, philosophy or Athenian philosophy or Greek philosophy to kind of make the message more desirable. But he came proclaiming or preaching to you the testimony of God. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. What is the gospel? And I, just a time out here. I love the entire Bible. <laughs> I love every verse in the, in the scriptures. They're like my kids. I love them all. All right. However, verse, 1 Corinthians 2.2 is something that I think about all the time. It haunts me. It guides me. For I determine so nothing among you, Bible says, but Christ and him crucified. For I determine so nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Paul, this word determine is in the original language is crino. means he judged. He weighed the scale of all the human ideas and all the things that matter. And this is what he came up with, Christ and him crucified. This is the message of his life. This is the thing that he wants to be known about. This is how he wants to live. This is what he wants to communicate to the Corinthians, to the Athenians, to anyone, to people in Ephesus, or even to people us 2,000 years later in the San Gabriel Valley. It's Christ and him crucified. Plain and simple. I love this message of this one verse because it, it helps me to be, be clear what I'm supposed to be about. Clarity is important, brothers and sisters. There's so many competing ideas. Just like at my house the other day, uh, last week, there's so much ash and stuff flying around. That's like that in our world. If we could just see with spiritual eyes what's floating around us, there's so, many, so much debris around us, brothers and sisters. Let's be clear. Let's be laser-focused. Christ and Him crucified, that's the message of our lives. Nothing else matters. 
That's why during this time of coronavirus in 2020, I'm praying that God will give us clarity of spiritual vision so we could see the lies of the world, so we could see the spirit of the day, so we could see the wisdom of the world floating around us like a bunch of debris. Christ and him crucified, the clarity of the message. Who is Christ? He's God. He's Yahweh. He's the second member of the Trinity. He's the God-man, fully God, fully man. He's the Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God. He's the one that went to the cross to pay for the payment of our sins. Yet this is the Christ that we preach. This is the Christ that we preach. He's more than a prophet. He's more than a son of God, a created son of God. He's more than an angel. He's Christ Jesus, Yahweh himself, and him crucified. Jesus is the one that went to the cross. Jesus is the one that went to the cross. 2 Timothy 4 gives us a warning here. I want to read this for us. 2 Timothy 4, um, verse 3. Let me back up to verse 2. Preach the word. Be ready in season. This is a call for all preachers. This is a call for a pastor. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Why? Why, Paul? As he writes to Timothy, verse 3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. They're going to look out for people that's going to tell them what they want to hear. Worldly wisdom, living for today, living for yourself. And will turn away their ear from the truth, Christ, and will turn aside to myths. Just smoke. Nothing of substance. But you, as he's talking to Timothy, he's screaming at me too. But you, pastor, preacher, Timothy, Rocky, be sober in all things. Have a clear mind. Endure hardship. Keep moving forward despite opposition. Do the work of the evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. In order to do the work of an evangelist, we need to be clear on what the gospel message is about. It's Christ and him crucified. Clarity, brothers and sisters. And remember this, to fulfill my ministry, to fulfill your ministry, I've saved no one. Wendy didn't save Uncle George. None of us have saved anyone. Our job to fulfill the call of an evangelist is to preach the gospel. Clearly, what is the gospel for us to understand it and to deliver it? It's God's job to save anybody. So let's remove some unnecessary pressure. We don't save anybody. Christ saves. The word of the cross, the word of the cross is where Jesus died, where his precious blood poured out his holy veins and was poured out over our wretched souls so that we'd be white as snow. This is the word of the cross. This is the word of the cross. I'm going to a word of application here, brothers and sisters. Um, I love this church. What a privilege it is to serve Evergreen SUV in this way. Your pastors love this church and the church family. Epicurus was a very prominent man in Athens. What Epicurus taught is that you live and then you die and that's it. Epicurus taught that you are to live 
fully and to seek happiness in this life. Epicurus taught to play it safe so that it won't cost you any heartache or pain. Set it up for your family and your life and your, and your, and your career so that you could be all that you could be. Does that sound familiar today? Epicurus is still alive today. And the Corinthians, like I said, tied in their status with association with things. Corinthians, just like perhaps in the Asian culture, many, many cultures, Hispanic culture as well, was an honor-shame culture. Meaning, if your peers esteemed you, you've, you've arrived. If the peers around you looked at you like, nah, you didn't have it. So the Corinthians, to the Corinthians, recognition was important, mastery of life. Did I, do I have my act together? Do, can I demonstrate to my neighbors that I got my stuff together? I love this church family. And I think to myself, at Evergreen SGV, what has become status symbols for our church here? All right, what has been the source of any divisions or anything like that? What, is Christ so preeminent that there are no rivals to him in our church family? These are the things that have come up, and I'm kind of picking on myself too. Perhaps if you pull in the Epicurean philosophy to our lives here in Evergreen SGV, perhaps status symbols have been I'm married, multiple children. I, I have multiple children. I'm married. In our marriage, you know, we might have a few arguments here and there, but you know what? We're pretty good. And we come to church looking pretty good. You know, my kids, they're not perfect, but you know what? They got their stuff in order. I'm doing a great job as a parent. In an honor and shame culture, that is what would elevate if marriage and family are the things of vast importance, most importance. So if I'm struggling in my marriage, I have fights with Sharla, I, got, I better keep it to myself because I want people to think I have it all together. If my kids aren't doing exactly perfect and they're, they're, they're struggling, I better keep that between us, keep things private because I, I don't want people to feel like I don't have my act together. Recognition, image, these are the things that will rule. But the gospel says this, give all of yourselves to Christ. The one who bled on the cross, bled on the cross and died to myself and follow him as my Lord. Where Christ, who he is and what he has done and what he's going to do, begins to define me. So if I do have problems with Sharla, that may describe me, but they'll never define me. If my children are struggling, these things may describe what's going on and real heartaches, but they'll never define me. Christ is my identity because he defines who I am. That's the gospel. That's Christ and him crucified. Just to conclude here, I want to finish up here. I bet you the Corinthians would have loved our judicial system. <laughs> I mean, I've had an opportunity to serve on a handful of juries already, and they always send me to downtown L.A., right? I, don't, I can't go to Alhambra. They always send me to downtown L.A. where I'm driving to the temple, parking my car, and walking across and down the hill. And they always do that. And I bet you the Corinthians would have loved it because in the courtroom, 
they have a judge, and they have these attorneys who present masterful arguments. They're well-dressed, well-educated, and they give the great presentation either for the prosecution or for the defense. And, and, and they do a masterful job. So I bet you the Corinthians would have loved this. They would have been entertained, like, wow, that was a good point. Touche, that was a good counterpoint. I mean, they would have loved that. But all the defendants that I've seen in my cases always had a defense attorney. They didn't, no one was up there defending themselves and talking about uh, why they're innocent. All right? they, they always had a defense attorney. Because not having a defense attorney is foolishness. It's moronic. It's stupid. It's crazy. Especially if the, if the courts will provide you one, even if you can't afford one. It's free. You better take advantage of that. So someday in that day of reckoning, when we appear before the judge himself, God himself, if you have actually trusted in other things other than Christ being your identity, you know what's going to happen? You will stand before the judge, God himself, and there will be accusation made against you by Satan himself, the accuser. And oh, what you're going to do is this. Exhibit one. I had a good marriage. Not perfect, but good. Exhibit number two. My kids, they're pretty good. You know, they end up being decent people, successful in life. They went to college, okay? Exhibit number three. You know, I was moral. I paid my taxes. I did all those things right. Exhibit number four. I even attended service regularly. I was involved in the church. Exhibit number five. People thought highly of me at church. That's not going to work. Bible says, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Our, our good works are like filthy rags before him. Here's another scenario. To those of us who have fully given ourselves to Christ, I die to myself. I follow you, Christ, as my Lord and Savior. You define me. You direct me. Boom. When this life ends for us, you'll be standing before the judge, God himself, in the heavenly courtrooms, and Jesus is the one that's going to be speaking. We don't have to say a word. Accusation, sin, 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 sin. Yes, 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 these are all true. And then when it's time for Jesus to speak, exhibit one, he shows his head scarred, where they jammed a wood, a thorny crown of thorns on his head, where he bled, where blood was dripping down his face and his beard. Exhibit number two. He's going to take off his shirt and show where his back was filleted because he was flogged so hard, where his bones and his organs were, were exposed and blood was gushing out of his back. Exhibit number three. He's going to show his nail-pierced hands where they nailed him to the cross, where he was bleeding down his elbow, down his side, down to his feet, where he was bleeding to death on the cross. Exhibit number four. He's going to show his feet where his nail pierced, where they hung him on the cross, bleeding to death. Blood, his holy blood is dripping down his toes and uh, wasting on the ground. And exhibit number five, he's going to pull up his shirt and show where the soldier came and jammed the spear into his heart sack and where water and his holy blood was bursting all over the place to prove that he was dead. 
It's the blood, brothers and sisters. The blood is where the power is at. The, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But those of us who have been saved, it is the power of God. The word of the cross is talking about the blood, the sacrifice of Christ. The blood is where the power is at. We'll be declared innocent. Not word, one word spoken on our part, but innocent. My encouragement to us as, uh, here at Evergreen SUV is this. If there's any confusion in what the gospel is about, it's about Christ and him crucified. Let's be clear about that. It's not about anything else. It's not in what we own. It's not in what we do. It's not in our, in our relationships. It's not how well we have our marriage and, and our, how we raise our kids, how we do our finances. Those are important things now. But these things never will define who we are. Christ and him crucified. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to preach your word. I pray, Lord, that your word will go out and your word will be uh, changing our minds and, and, and grown us to love you more. Father, I thank you for this time to preach on your son, Jesus Christ, who was crucified on our behalf. Father, I pray for those of us in, uh, listening today, watching today, who know that they haven't trusted you in you this way, who haven't given their lives to you as their Lord. I pray, Lord, their hearts will be pricked and they will cry out to you right now and say, Jesus, forgive me. I had a different type of gospel. I was more interested in living my best life now and creating an image for myself. Father, I want you. I need your son, Jesus Christ. And the payment that he offers up on the cross, he, I need him to be my Lord. I leave my old kingdom and transfer to your kingdom. Father, I pray they will pray this. And Lord, I pray that they will reach out to a pastor, someone in the church to help them. Father, I pray for those Christians in here that do know you, who identify in you, Jesus, as their Lord and Savior, that we be more clear what the gospel message is so that we could carry on the work of discipleship and evangelizing and edifying one another. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.